We have to be the advocates for consistent democracy and uh, opponents of the status quo. So um, we need to be, we on the left need to be the ones that are pushing the, the envelope on democracy, whether it's uh, around voting rights, whether it's about uh, the right of workers to join and form unions, whether it's women controlling their own bodies, uh, whether it's religious practices, whatever. We need to be the ones that are pushing the envelope. Hey, folks. This is Stephen Pitts, host of Black Work Talk, an organizing upgrade podcast. Here we take a look at efforts around the country to build the collective power of black workers. We dropped the first episode of Black Work Talk on November 11th of last year. I wish we had created some sort of time capsule where we could bury our predictions for the next eight months so we could open the capsule mid-July to see how close we were to guessing things right, or in this case, see how far off we were. Assume Trump would not go quietly into the night. Never would have guessed that he would foment insurrection. Assume McConnell would resurrect his Senator No persona and strive to block everything that Biden wouldn't try to accomplish. Never would have guessed the GOP would swallow hook, lie, and sinker the big lie about the election, and that accepting the big lie would be the litmus test for Republican elected officials. Assume that the convergence of COVID, the recession, and the racial justice uprising would push Biden to promote better policies than Obama. Never would have guessed Biden's performance would be this progressive. And have some observers compare him to FDR, while others muse about the end of neoliberalism. So we thought it appropriate to end season one as we began it, talking with Bill Fletcher about the state of the world, the state of left politics, and the state of black worker organizing. Bill and I had a fascinating conversation about January 6th. I called it an insurrection. Bill calls it, and I think he's correct, a coup, not an insurrection. We talked about the distinction between those people who are profoundly anti-democratic and those people who are agnostic about democracy because this democratic society has failed them. Bill advanced the idea that the only way to save democracy is to be consistent fighters for democracy. And this push should extend beyond the voting booth as we extend democracy to all spheres of society. We discussed the notion that capitalism had not existed without racism, and this intertwined nature of race and class had profound implications for judicial left politics, race cannot be seen as an afterthought, and traditional black politics, structural racism cannot be successfully fought without taking on the capitalist political economy and the class dynamics of the black community. I think you'll enjoy this episode. But I do want to remind you that we need your support. Here at Black Work Talk, we're committed to developing a vibrant conversation, bringing you the key voices building black worker power in the workplace and in the neighborhood. Bringing you the best guests and the most timely discussions take resources. We depend upon people power to grow. So please go to Patreon to make a financial contribution, large or small, and become a part of our community to support the work we do here at Black Work Talk. Yo, Bill, how you doing, I'm doing man? great, Steve, and I'm glad to be uh, back on the program. Looking forward to this and looking yeah. forward to messing with you. Yeah, uh, well, you know that last part for a second. Um, you, know, you started the show. You're the first guest. You started the season. 
And what wasn't clear then, by the way, was clearer now, that we're going to have distinct seasons. And so you open the season and you're closing the season. You're number 18, man. And so, um, but all jokes aside, we'll have a lot of jokes in and out um, while we talk today. I'm glad you're here. Thank you. You know, and and for a lot of reasons. And I jokingly said that I put in my newsletter how if you play back the tapes, they'll say that we we forecasted the insurrection. Mm -hmm. And we knew that Biden was the second coming mm-hmm. FDR. Then I realized that was in the unedited version of our recording. <laughs> I edited that part out. So in the actual published podcast, that's okay. not there. But rest assured, we made those predictions, oh, indeed. didn't we? Indeed. <laughs> so, um, but seriously, man, um, God, the world's so different now when we, when we, we, talked, we talked right before the, around the election in November of, of 2020. And damn, she's changed a lot, man. What's your thoughts on where we are right now, man? What's your thoughts? Both in terms of, I'll put three different, well, that first one, the insurrection, what it means. What's your thoughts on that? You're talking about the coup attempt, January 6th? Yeah, that's fine too. Insurrection, Um, cool, that's cool. All right, well, since our last episode, um, a couple of things, Steve. The first thing is that Biden's domestic program turned out to be far different than most people on the left had anticipated. And that uh, most commentators on the left were expecting simply a warmed over Obama. And that's not how this has been playing on a number of different levels. One of the things that's really striking, I'm talking about domestically, is Biden's unapologetic support for unions which is different from anything that I can remember in my lifetime. Um, The the coup attempt, uh, you know, thinking back to when you and I first met in 1972 and what the radical movement was thinking then, uh, many of us thought that there was the danger of fascism or a military coup, but it also seemed somewhat abstract. Uh, and, and for much of the left, the declaration of the danger of fascism was an overstatement about various forms of repression. I think what we saw uh, during the Trump administration and particularly after the election was a fascist uh, exciting a right-wing populist movement and was absolutely providing cover for a coup attempt on January 6th. Now, you and I have had a discussion about whether to use the term coup or insurrection. I'm using the term coup because for me that conveys a fight primarily within the ruling class. Uh, that might enlist elements from outside of the ruling class. And um, and that this was a fight to overturn an election, to basically threaten the Constitution of the United States. And, um, you know, one there's many observations to be made of that. Uh, I've gotten into some exchanges with some fascists over it uh, in some uh, interviews that I've done where people will say, well, if we were really serious, we would have won. 
we mean in a fascist. And I responded, no, the problem was you thought as white folks, you were simply going to be able to walk in unhindered. And it didn't turn out that way. And, uh, and so what we have seen is a major threat to constitutional democracy uh, that is not going away. And, uh, and I think that we have to be very prepared for a number of different things coming from the right. In Congress, continuous obstructions. Outside of Congress, um, you know, uh, continued, um, uh, what's a good word? Uh, playing on the irrationalism and, and just, you know, really exciting this right-wing populist movement. And we also have to be prepared for various kinds of right-wing acts of terrorism. You know, as you're talking, Bill, I, I appreciate the distinction between insurrection and a coup. And given that definition, I see why you're calling it a coup, and I, I'm, a, I'm okay with that. In terms of trying to think more about what happened and why implications, you mentioned how they assumed because they're white, they could walk mm -hmm. in and stop things, you know? And they clearly couldn't walk in and right. stop things. That by itself says that the way we talk about whiteness has to be more mm -hmm. complicated. I think a lot of times what happens as we discuss race in general, we tend to not have a nuanced sense of race. And, and because of nuance, that means it's not accurate in the, the day, to be honest. And it means in the real world of things that pop up that we can't, don't understand. So the whole, whole notion that people could at the same time, say blue lives matter. They stop on blue lives, by the way. <laughs> that for them not inconsistent. And the question is, how do we process that kind of thing? That clearly is at some level inconsistent, but it exists though. So I think that's one thing I thought about as you're talking. Um, this whole question of how we, I call we, is broad idea of the left look at mm -hmm. race in more nuanced ways. We're super important because too often times the kind of racial common sense. It just doesn't hold. It just doesn't hold. You know, this is really, really important. Um, so this issue of the contradictory attitude of the far right towards law enforcement, I think in part reflects that within the far right, there is, a, there is in and of itself a division of opinion. And, and so... The far right is the champion of the white republic, the new confederacy, neo-apartheid, whatever you want to call it. Um, they see some elements of the far right, see within law enforcement. Think about Timothy McVeigh, right? Enemy, the enemy of the white republic, uh, even if it's white people uh, that are, you know, law enforcement officers. Then you have other elements of, of the far right that basically see themselves as um, trying to penetrate and operate within law enforcement and utilize law enforcement in order to advance the, the aims of the far right. So you've got that. Um, the issue of what it means to be white in, 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 in 21st century of the United States is becoming particularly complicated because part of what the the banner of the far right, particularly the right-wing populists, is that 
it doesn't pay to be white anymore. That this society has let white people down. And so you've got that as one of the things that's in operation. The other thing is the strange phenomena within the right of, uh, of some elements trying to advocate I hate to even use a term of kind of race neutrality because they're not race neutral, but they, they try to come off as race neutral and open up spaces for people of color. And you see this in groups like the Proud Boys and others where you actually have people of color, not in any great numbers, but people of color that are there in operation and who... Um, in some cases, come into real leadership positions. So whiteness, the lesson here is that whiteness is a process that is constantly evolving. And, and I think that that's what we're seeing now. And that's why you can't like look at the situation we face today and, or you, you could look at the situation today and understand that it is not identical to something in let's say, 1965. But Bill, I would add to say that just as blackness is not monolithic, nor right. is whiteness. And, and, th and, and that sense of differences within all social categories has to be part of the analysis. Right. Because when it's not there, then simply, one, it's inaccurate, <laughs> and two, it means we have bad strategies flowing from that and we lose. Or you might say we get less power than we might normally yeah. have. I think um, that's right. I think linked, no, linked that bill by thought about you're talking. Because, it, I mean, the best data we have say that Trump did better with non-whites in 2020 did in 2016. Mm -hmm. Not leaps and bounds for everybody, but did better. And what I think about hearing that and other issues as well is that because the failures of our society a lot of people don't have, don't have a stake in democracy as, as we talk mm -hmm. about it. And so for some people, because they don't have a stake in democracy as, as we know of it, and they see their life falling apart and they interpret it being because of the status quo, they see their actions being one of promoting a better way of being not one of attacking democracy. And so to me, what well, I say this, to say that, I think that we have a delicate act of both having to defend democracy, but also find ways to qualitatively change other life conditions in order to actually d defend democracy. Because if this, if the, if the, public issue overriding is democracy, we might lose that battle, dude. We might lose that battle if it's phrased that way. Um, I would reframe it somewhat, slightly. We have to be the advocates for consistent democracy and uh, opponents of the status quo. So um, we need to be, we on the left need to be the ones that are pushing the, the envelope on democracy, whether it's uh, around voting rights, whether it's about uh, the right of workers to join and form unions, whether it's women controlling their own bodies, 
uh, whether it's religious practices, whatever, we need to be the ones that are pushing the envelope. And uh, But I think you're highlighting a point that really needs to be emphasized, that you have a large segment, it's a minority, but a large segment of population that does not believe in democracy, Steve, that uh, is not interested in broadly defined liberal values or, or democratic values. They are, uh, uh, they're driven by or attracted to authoritarianism. And these are people that see, they're not only, they, they feel threatened, obviously, by the attack on the notion of the white republic um, they feel threatened by the the changes in the planet, um, and they want the comfort that authoritarianism brings. Uh, this is a fairly large minority of the population, and that's what we got to deal with. So, yes, we need to be opponents of the status quo. We need to defend democratic institutions, but push... Um, push beyond them. And, and this becomes very, very important. We cannot simply be the ones that are responding to the attacks on democratic institutions. We've got to go much further. To make sure that what I said was clear, because maybe it wasn't, you know, maybe once when we simply repeat myself, when we hear my voice yeah, talk so. again, that I think there's, there's a distinction distinct between people who are anti-democratic mm -hmm. and those people who are a-democratic mm -hmm. and kind of indifferent because they don't see any really impact on their lives. And I think that the people who are anti-democratic, they're largely lost causes in the current battle. And But the people who may vote for anti-democrats, but really a-democratic, I'm saying. And the way that they become on our side on the democracy battle, to do your, your phrases, is to extend democracy in all yeah. spheres of life. And so it's, it's, it's the voting rights, it's unionizations, women's control of the body, also things like public right. budgeting and schools. And so how do you extend democracy to all spheres of lives? So in people's minds, it's not just a matter of extending democracy, it's improving li lives of the kids right. in school, it's improving the, the public safety, those sort of things. I okay. wanna switch on to something else you, you hinted on in the very beginning about our not predicting um, the FDR will show right. up again. Um, why do you think we missed that? And what are the implications for that? Um, but first of all, maybe before that, Bill, he's not right. FDR. Okay. And, and so more, I guess, first question, how, how, do you, how would you describe Biden? Then, then it's a matter of how do we miss the boat implications? Well, I'm going to start in a funny place. FDR wasn't FDR until about 1934. Um, FDR, uh, elected in 1932, was uh, a fairly mainstream Democrat from New York who um, had as his critical image for uh, the stabilization of the U.S. in the middle of a depression Mussolini's corporate state. So something happened. 
And what that was, was actually two factors that are really important. One was that there were social movements that were engaged. There was a very significant role of the Communist Party and socialists, the Mustites and others that were putting real pressure on all levels of government. The other thing which many people underestimate is that there was a split within the ruling elite about FDR's ideas and, and proposed concessions to the working class and other oppressed. And this, uh, the, the right-wing element of the, of the ruling class was vehemently in opposition to him. And so FDR found himself in a situation where he was being blocked. And in fact, there was a coup that was being planned against him, uh, where they were going to use this uh, former Marine general, Smedley Butler, to lead, uh, lead the coup. So FDR becomes the FDR that we know in part because of these, these factors that came together. Um, Biden... Uh, having been uh, Obama's vice president, people were looking at Biden. They were making an irrational decision or conclusion. They were looking at his history and they were looking at his role under Obama. What they weren't so much looking at was the conjuncture that we're in right now, the concrete situation. And they also were not factoring in things like the uh, Sanders campaign of 2016 and 2020, and the um, the, the, the post-George Floyd movement. Um, and so, the, you know, had it not been for Sanders, had it not been for the uh, Black Lives Matter movement, had it not been for... Um, the immigrant rights movement, I think that Biden might have been what we were predicting, what many of us were predicting. And, and so that's one of the reasons that I think it's really important for, for we on the left to, when we're making plans, first of all, to engage in some level of humility, i.e. we don't know everything. Second, to engage in um, scenario planning that there are options. Uh, here's an example, Steve, that the polls indicated that there was going to be a so-called blue wave in November. There were many progressive forces that basically put all of their money on that as an outcome. And they had no plan, no plan B, if there wasn't a blue, a blue wave. And so we've got to understand that um, the best predictions are just that, that things can play out in unusual ways and that it's really important to have a plan B. Uh, but it's also uh, what we saw, in, I think, in the Biden case on domestic issues, and I emphasize domestic because there's a whole foreign policy issue or set of issues that we can talk about. But on the domestic, we were largely wrong. Bill, I, I would say one more thing in terms of, of the context that that we didn't grasp well is on the individual level of Biden him, himself. 
that in some ways, I, um, being kind of old, right, I have some memory of kind of white working class politicians mm-hmm. who had deep working class sensibilities. And that meant they came out in complicated mm-hmm. ways, right? That they, they could hold simultaneously being pro-union and be mm-hmm. anti-busing. Right. Hold simultaneously, right? And I think back to the when I wasn't around in the 30s, you had people who were strongly supporting many CIO unions, and they had these labor priests, right, who were strongly supporting the right to organize and were virulently anti-communist and help lead lead the red baiting side of the, the, the labor movement. And so that, so that whole kind of political persona of someone who is, has deep working class sensibilities and deep is clearly relative, right? And can be messed up in other dimensions. We tend to, to lose that as we lost some of our class politics and our, and our understanding and analysis, that that, that kind of contradiction can, can hold. Someone can be pro-union within context, not saying it's a socialist right. at all, right? We be pro-union in a deep way, but also have very mainstream politics and in context come out in really bad ways that we see around busing, around the crime bill, around Eda Hill and so forth. And so that notion of folk who were kind of working class folk um, and all of these complications, we kind of miss sometimes in our understanding of the world. Yeah, man, I think that that's absolutely right. Um, it's called nuance or dialectics, depending on your point of view. But um, yeah, no, you're absolutely on the money. And we keep missing this because we um, all too often think one-dimensionally. And, uh, and, and then there is, there is the personality factor. You know, it's like Obama, I think, would have made a great Supreme Court justice. I think that that, that was a position that was made for him. Um, he uh, he wants to be the adult in the room, um, and he is uh, he looks at compromise to a great extent as a strategy, and that's not where Biden is. And so I think that that's another element uh, that needs to get factored in. But in either case, that's what we have right now. On the foreign policy side, um, we do not see, well, the good news was the return to the Paris Climate Accord and, and negotiations with the Iranians to hopefully reconnect on the, uh, uh, the, the nuclear uh, agreement. But we, you know, we, we still have, you know, very strong support for the apartheid, Israeli apartheid regime. Um, he has yet to back down on uh, or rescind Trump's giveaway to the Moroccans of the Western Sahara. Um, you know, he is not exactly jingoistic when it comes to China, uh, but he is consistent in this idea of this fairly hostile relationship to China that could evolve into a, uh, another Cold War. And so the foreign policy itself has not fundamentally shifted. And we have a job there, and unfortunately not enough forces to pursue it. The last point, not enough forces, is super important, Bill, given our 
analysis of the, of the domestic scene? Because what you said is that because of masses in motion, BLM, immigration, immigration rights stuff, those things, my view about his personality, that goes into play around better domestic policies. But if we don't have masses in motion around foreign policy issues, and we examine some of the working class folk I mentioned before and their views about the Cold War, we see what right. Biden's doing. So I think that, that that it speaks to both an understanding of the limitations of individuals and, and their worldviews and the importance of having forces in motion to require a different stance. And so when a lot of the working class politicians in the 60s came out against Vietnam War, it's both because of the battle in Vietnam, but also because people in the district got that's killed right. in Vietnam too. And, and, and that's important to see as you as analyze and understand what's going on and why. And no, I think that that's right. And I, I mean, I'm very involved, as you know, around the issue of the Western Sahara, uh, most of which is occupied by Morocco. And one of the things that be has become uh, very obvious is that there are members of Congress, including within the Black Caucus, that I would have expected it, it was like a slam dunk, that they would be in opposition to the Moroccan occupation, et cetera. But there's no or very little pressure on them that they feel like it is an important enough issue that they have to go out there, step out and do something. And, and so in the absence of pressure, uh, these folks are going to continue to cave. That gets to what I want to move to next, Bill. This whole question of race mm -hmm. and class. Um, you, you talked about um, call it nuance or the real world right. dialectics, right? Um, that too often we have race versus mm -hmm. class. Or we might speak about some intertwining of the two, but our analysis doesn't really show that. Because I would say that, the, that some of those f black folks you thought would be a flam dunk, they're reflecting their positions in the world beyond the, mm -hmm. their blackness. And I think a lot of times our kind of default that they're black, therefore, has to be kind of qualified, mm -hmm. like a whole bunch, mm -hmm. you know? And, and so if someone asks you for, the word, I won't say the Fletcher word, but I don't want to kind of limit it to that, but the word on how race and class operate, mm -hmm. what would you say? I would say the first word I would use is interpenetrate. Um, that it's not add-on, it's more like a double helix. And um, and that it goes to discussion you and I have had about this whole term racial capitalism. Um, and I want to just say to the audience that you, Pitts, have had reservations about that term that you've raised with me and raised with others. And... Maybe after a couple of times of you raising it, I was really doing some thinking about it and thinking about where has capitalism been non-racial? And the answer, as far as I can tell, is nowhere. That even in a place like Iceland, right? I mean, race interpenetrates. It is, it, it, it is essential in the development of capitalism. And could there have been a capitalism without race? Maybe. I mean, 
but it would have looked very different from what we have ended up seeing. And that's what's important, what we have ended up seeing, not some abstraction about had certain things played out differently in the Netherlands in the 1300s, would, would capitalism have looked differently? Um, and so I think that when we're talking about race and class, we're talking about the interpenetration of these phenomena that both are independent but also interlinked. And, um, and this is something that large parts of the left don't get. They continue to think that uh, class and capitalism stands on its own, that race is something of some sort of add-on that uh, can be uh, drawn upon, uh, as people would like to say, when the bourgeoisie needs to divide people, they use race. As if race is sitting in the closet like a vacuum cleaner that you then pull out when the floors get dirty, as opposed to understanding that it is there, it is ever-present, and that it is essential at the levels of both justification of oppression, but also of social control. Now, Bill, you know, given time, you could have saved time. So you said I was correct and saved time, by the way. That would have been good enough yeah, for the audience, but no. Well, I'll, on and I'll on say on. now that you were but, basically correct. But, but let me just, in all seriousness... But but, yeah. but 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 being said, I don't, yeah, I was joking. So let oh, me yeah, sure yeah. clear. I, I was joking, but but um, f- for me, given my interests and my leanings, I think I, I I care less about. Well, that's a bad term. I focus more on the the black folks who are on the class piece. That 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 um, in a lot of manifestations. The idea of plural economy, class, capitalism, left out of the black analysis of our, mm-hmm. our situation, and I think that's right. both wrong, but also it leads to bad a lot of stuff, be it cost strategies or tactics, or those kind of campaign plans. So it's not so much this notion that that some people feel you're right. Some people do feel this way that you pull race out of a cloth mm-hmm. like a vacuum cleaner. It's also people think that simply race is the determining factor for black folks' right. living conditions. Um, race defined narrowly. And that's my kind of interesting concerns because it impacts a lot of stuff. It impacts um, our political emotions that we have in the black community. It impacts solutions we have. It, it, it causes unfortunate alignments when we faded mm-hmm. euphemistically. So, yeah. Well, I want to actually build on this because I think this is a critical discussion. There is a tendency that I see in the left, which I'll call progressive demographics. And it's basically the idea that politics is about demographic blocks and how they interact. And so, and and I'll give you an example. I was in a discussion with some young activists recently and one person said, Well, you know, I just don't understand. Black people, uh, we keep making alliances with others who keep selling us out. And, you know, we do for these other minorities and then we get discarded. So I asked this person, which black people, which other racialized groups, 
Under what conditions? What are you talking about? Right? Because there's a way that we can talk about politics as if, for example, we would expect all Chicanos, because there is the reality of racism and national oppression, that they will all vote in a particular direction. Or that we would expect that all Chinese, because of clear anti-Asian racism, would vote in a certain way. And, and that completely ignores the class question. It also ignores the issue of colonial mentality, as Fanon would say. And, and I think that uh, what happens with many uh, black leftists is that when we ignore the class question, um, when we ignore that uh, our situation is, uh, to use the term from Althusser, overdetermined, uh, people make a series of mistakes. Uh, and, and so, like, for example, after the November election, Steve, as you know, a number of commentators were talking about, well, we don't know what's happening. You know, there was an increase in the Trump vote among black folks and among Mexican-Americans, right? Well, yes, there was. But the reality was that overwhelmingly these, these populations voted against Trump. But the other part is, which segments of our populations were doing it and why? And that's where when you ignore class and you ignore, I would add to that, ideology, um, you end up becoming making a whole series of mistakes and you can't have a coherent strategy. It also abandons the idea of the role of the left. Um, as I said to the same group, that we on the left need to be embarked in struggles, for example, within Black America, among uh, 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 Chicanos, among Puerto Ricans, among Asians, etc. We need to be engaged in a struggle. We're fighting out a political struggle within these populations as well as more broadly. And, and that's why a race-exclusive analysis or an analysis that implicitly suggests that racism preceded capitalism gets us in a cul-de-sac. Yeah, I, I think about um someone, I forgot who it was. He was saying that had it not been for, for Trump, Trump is symbolic of a lot of the, we'll call them assholes mm -hmm. in GOP, that a lot more blacks would be Republicans. Mm -hmm. And I think that speaks to the fact that, that the political economy can cleave the mm -hmm. black community in ways that without the craziness of the Trumpites might cause different sort of political allegiance. It must be fascinating to see what happens in New York. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're yeah. New Yorkers. So you probably know much more about it than I do, both history and kind of interest right now. But you're going to have a black mayor, okay, Eric Adams, um, much different trajectory than the first black mayor in New York, yeah. David Dinkins. And it's, it's both, it's not just a matter of differences in history, it's also a matter of how they stood with certain forces in motion, or not in motion in the current case, and their kind of views of class and so forth. You know, and so 
to me, this whole question of not where do you stand vis-a-vis international issues or where you stand vis-a-vis kind of the domestic democracy issues, but how do you stand looking at developing Oakland Mm -hmm. or New York or Chicago is super important because it's easy to condemn something like Trump. It's kind of like you wake up Mm -hmm. and do that easier, right? But the question is, if you're trying to rebuild Oakland, what do you do? What's your strategy? Is your base, are you trying to do it based on bringing middle-class folk back to downtown Oakland? Is your strategy based on having new stadiums, having new warehouses? I think the whole question we're raised now about political economy and, and, and black folks, it comes up more clearly when you look at those kind of local issues, and clearly policing as well, by the way. Um, that's true. And, and so I want to just look at New York for a second. Um, Eric Adams appears to have done very well in poorer areas. And what I think many people on the left who embraced the slogan, abolish the police or defund the police, misanalyzed is, uh, and and the polls verify this, that in our communities, there's no consensus on it. Um, What there is a consensus on is that people want the police and law enforcement to be demilitarized, uh, and they want safety, they want security, they they don't want bullets flying all over the place. And to the extent to which we don't seem to be answering those questions, we lose out. And and we've got to be thinking, um, we on the left have to always be thinking, uh, begin with, and begin with, not end with, begin with where are the people? What, what are the issues that the people are raising? Uh, what are the concerns and how do our proposals relate to that? You know, one of the things, experiences I had, Steve, uh, last year was I did a forum and there was this young brother who was in DSA in the forum. It wasn't a DSA forum. And, um, and we got it. We were talking about the issue of the police and he was talking to a fairly conservative audience. It was a union audience, but fairly conservative mainly white, and uh, and he was basically talking about defunding the police, et cetera. So I was interviewing him, and so I asked him some hard questions. And I said, I said, look, a few years ago, my daughter was held up at gunpoint uh, by a couple of guys, she and her friends. You may not have known this. She was held up at gunpoint, and she could have been killed. Now, would I have cried a tear if a cop had put a bullet in that guy's head? No, I wouldn't have, right? My attitude is you pull a gun on on an unarmed civilian, you get what you get. Too bad, book's closed. Well, I'm a leftist. I know that there's a lot of people out there that, that fear going out, um, and and are not necessarily loving the police. In fact, they want the police to be accountable. 
So I asked this guy, so what, what do you say to someone like that? What do you say to me? And this guy did a dance that would have made Fred Astaire proud. I mean, he was just all over the place talking about, well, we have to really look at why people have guns. And I said, no, 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 no. It's not like you can do a political education class when someone has a gun pointed at you. It's not like you can say, well, you know, brother, I really understand this is a really oppressive society and capitalism sucks. And let's join together to fight for the proletariat. It doesn't seem to work that way. If our answers don't correspond, it doesn't mean tailing people, but we need to be framing in a progressive way how to respond to people's concerns. The same thing about what you were saying about jobs. It, that uh, 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 let, Let's take the issue of the environment. Part of why um, segments of the union movement and others will go for very reactionary economic development proposals as opposed to green proposals is that they look at our ideas as complete idealism. It's never going to happen. And that a pipeline that is going to be funded is better than any idea that's still on the, on the drawing, uh, drawing board. We have to respond to that. You can't simply just write that off as ignorance. We've got to respond to that. What is our answer? What is it that we're offering as an alternative? And fortunately, in the environmental movement, there are people that are coming up with answers. And, and so we can therefore do battle. But I think that that's, we've got to make this thing really concrete. Otherwise, we will get um, just just simply swept away as leftists. I think about... No, no, oh, no I'm go sorry. Go on, Bill. Now, I think about um, the South Carolina primary mm -hmm. in 2020, you know, where, where Biden was on the ropes, mm -hmm. basically, and black folks saved in South Carolina, you know, and, and folk brought in Biden to South Carolina, I mean, Bernie, South Carolina, and Killer Mike, probably Danny Glover there as well, and still black folks right. saved Biden. And so this whole question of what are the, are the real organic ties between black leftists and black communities, working, working class communities are really important. And um, it's not just the idea of where people are at, how do you address those concerns? That's a really important thing, Bill. It's also how to get them in motion to change right. their world. And and what issues allow that? Because it seems to me that, well, I used the phrase, work clarifies, that people could have a a one view of the world that may be incorrect, but they won't lose that idea until they hit a brick wall because of that misconception. But if they simply, if, if we allow for it to simply sit in their living rooms with that idea, they'll maintain yeah. that idea. So somehow we got to keep people in motion in a way that they collectively try to change the world. In the course of the activity, things become clearer and clearer and clearer, I think. That's an important task. I, I would just, I would agree, but I would supplement it. So it's, a combination of political education and a change in practice. So just going back to South Carolina, I think that between 2016 and 2020, um, there needed to be a completely different level of organization and organizing going on in South Carolina by the Sanders forces. And there needed to be a connection with the sort of indigenous leadership in the state um, among, particularly among African-Americans, but not just among African-Americans. And that it's not something that is 
resolved by a speaking engagement. You know, and and it's like it's digging in because you're right. Black South Carolina saved Biden. They looked at Biden probably as a more realistic victor over Trump. And they may have been right. But the but what because but we'll never know. And part of the thing is that if you don't put the resources in, if you don't think about we're going to invest, we as the left, in South Carolina, you can't just show up every four years and and hope that with the right platform that you're going to be able to change people's opinions. I think that responsibility is less on the Bernieites and more on, I'll say us, meaning black folks in South Carolina, in California, and, and so forth. The, the how, do, how do we develop like durable, progressive political polls in those areas that can contest for power with the with black liberals, black centrists? And that has to be kind of an explicit sort of yes. project that people engage in, and, and, and hopefully we win those, those yeah. projects. No, that's right. We need groups like... California Calls, the New Virginia Majority, the Working Families Party, et cetera, that dig in, dig deeply, uh, and build base areas. Uh, I mean, one of the things about South Carolina that always struck me uh, was hearing after 2012 that um, even though Obama lost the state, he got 40% of the vote with no resources put into the state, 40%. And I, I just said, wow, I mean, like 40%, not, we're not talking about like 10%, 15%, 40%. So shouldn't that be a signal to the left and progressives that we have some really interesting challenges and possibilities in South Carolina if we invest, may not be right away, but if we invest. Um, I think that that disconnect also manifested in investment, by the way, be honest. That, that, that I think that is, it's, it's, it's difficult to ask folk to challenge the boss if they don't see possibilities right. of winning. Absolutely. And, and 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 so just as we gotta build those roots in areas so you can have you know better city council people and so forth, also need a kind of sense of community that allow people to want to fight the boss and form a union and, and those sort of things. Mm -hmm. It's hard. But I want to shift a second, um, because I mentioned before when I asked you to be on the on the show today that you're kind of looking back, looking forward. And so I want to kind of move a bit towards the forward piece a bit more explicitly in some ways. Um, so for the audience, season two will launch in August. There'll be a slight hiatus as I have a life that retiree we should have. A and um, we're going to focus on four primary sort of topic areas. And I want to get, get your thoughts, Bill, on each of the topics. Okay, let me kind of lay out the areas and walk them through the different ones. One focus of the podcast next year next season, rather, we're looking at the black left and looking at questions of what does it mean? What are the ideas there? What kind of power do the folk have? 
what are strategies and so forth. The second sort of topic is the question of black workers and black work organization, be it unions, worker centers, and the like. The third would be a, a dive into the question of black women and workers. And there's kind of a couple of reasons for that. One is to look at that unique slice of black workers and the particular conditions there. But also is to kind of raise the issue, raise two issues. One, what does a, a black feminist perspective add to black worker organizing? But also, how does the perspective, the perspective of black women workers kind of interrogate a lot of our black women stuff we're seeing now? And the last sort of bucket would be this whole question of uh, building a progressive governing majority and basically winning, basically. And so that's what will be the season next year. Looking mm -hmm. forward to it. And so, Bill, you get to lay out the word on each of those, those issues, man. But, yeah. but seriously, though, so just one at a time. On the black left, how do you distinguish the black left from black liberals? Black left is anti-capitalist. The black left are those that are um, are not just fighting for reforms, but feel that the system is fundamentally toxic, and that we need something different. But they, uh, the black left is not at all, nor can it ever be, unified in terms of what that solution is. But it is a an assortment of movements and organizations and individuals that lean in that direction. So I hear you saying that, that the Black left is kind of identified as such because they have a, a stance around political mm -hmm. economy. Now, I've mentioned a couple of times that, that, that I enjoy talking to Michael Dawson on the show and his whole point about the neo, neoliberal racial order. And I think there's two dimensions there. One is the idea that neoliberalism is racialized. But equally important, there are some people who are anti-racist, but do it through the lens of right. neoliberalism. And, and so you're saying that important like demarcation is this question of, of your stance toward Correct. political economy. That, that yeah. makes sense to me. I think it's important, though, to have that stance and be able to roll it out in concrete ways in the in the local mm -hmm. world. Because you mentioned before, people want jobs. They want a good lifestyle, mm -hmm. those sort of things. And if folk on the Black left simply parade their anti-capitalist stance, but can't deal with questions of education and public safety and jobs and those things, then we're always going to lose out to, to black liberals who, who will either have a quote-unquote more plausible solution and, and have some sense of having more, more kind of immediate power to, to wield. So I think it's important to make sure that we, we look at the local level in particular and, and see how that unfolds. So, um, yes, I would agree. And I would say that one of the... Um, one of the mistakes that we often make is to think that being a good leftist means um, having a good program and uh, or platform. 
And that's important. But particularly when we're thinking about the issue of governing, um, what I think distinguishes or should distinguish leftists from liberals is the extent to which one, we're pushing and expanding the parameters of governance and those that are engaged in it, that we're creating greater opportunities for regular people to um, free themselves and to engage in real decision-making, not, not phony decision-making. Um, that we're creating or helping to create or supporting new institutions that are flowing out of the community that represent um, a progressive worldview. Um, you know, I think that it's not about flying a flag, Steve. Um, you know, I think that many people on the left have thought that uh, what was necessary was about simply uh, taking the right stand on an issue. Um, you know, uh, having uh, the right slogans on your newspaper, something like that. I think that it's much more about what are we going to do that doesn't simply improve the lives of people, but helps people improve their lives. In some ways, you're talking, Bill, I thought back to our discussion yeah. on democracy. And, and to me, it's a matter of how do you extend democracy beyond right. the ballot box. And what's been fascinating here in Oakland is the whole battle around the question of the city budget and trying to have a much more participatory mm -hmm. process um, around budgeting that can address the various needs from public safety to housing and so forth. And I mentioned it because they had a battle here in Oakland around this whole question of who speaks for the black mm -hmm. community. And, and, and a sister who comes really much comes from political struggles won that city council race, and she's been involved in leading this, this, this battle for a better budgeting process. So I think that's really important. The idea of expanding things is, is super important and, and developing those, those ties. You know, the development of the ties leads to the second issue that a worker organization itself and, and black workers and the second bucket for the for the podcast. And I was reading that, that, that the new guy's head of the OEW is a brother, Ray Curry. You know, he's a new he's um no, they I, have know a new they I didn't know that that was the case. Yeah, yeah. Ray Curry's a brother. Uh, I have no idea I haven't met him. And so we're seeing in, in some places, you know, blacks rising up to, to, to high places in the labor movement. But in my mind, that is simply a small part of the idea of black worker organization itself. So if folk ask for the Fletcher platform to how to improve the quality of black worker organizations, what do we have us do? Well, it's an interesting question, Steve. Um, so on the one hand, um, we need to build independent organizations like uh, the Black Worker Centers. But um, I think that we also have to try to transform 
the labor unions. And, and so this uh, President Curry, I'm glad to hear this. I'm hoping that he's good. Um, the UAW certainly needs a, a breath of fresh air. Um, but it's not enough. Uh, the, the, to me, what, what I want to know from the UAW is, what is your Southern organizing strategy? Right? What are you going to do and with whom? Uh, uh, will you hook up with the United Steelworkers, for example, and organize in South Carolina, uh, in Alabama, et cetera? Um, so part of the thing is actually building a critical mass of black workers who are being organized, who are coming into the union movement, um, who are the up-and-coming leaders, uh, and that's what that's what I think that we have to see, um, and and I think that I think that the Black Worker Centers could play a role with that, uh, in, among other things, in terms of pressuring the unions. But the people that are already in the unions, uh, the Black folks, need to be demanding more, uh, and they need to be thinking about how can I put it. Um, what do we think that the unions need to be doing? Not just in terms of black folks, but more generally. There's a project I was in, in, engaged in a few years ago, you might remember, that was initiated by CBTU. And it had started with the idea of uh, sort of a black agenda for the labor movement. And what people initially meant was... Um, what do black folks want to get? What, what do we want the labor movement to do for us? And I argued that a black agenda for the union movement has to be about not what, just what we want to be done for us, but what we want the labor movement to be doing, period. And what does, what, what is the, what is the, uh, our view on the centrality of organizing the South? on the issue of economic development in the cities, et cetera, that we need to be articulating a vision that's not just a vision for black folks, but a vision for a different kind of labor movement. That's more of what I'd like to see happen. Now, linked to that, I, I think I have a couple of things, Bill. One is that in the correct desire to improve like wages and benefits for, 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 mm -hmm. for workers and the reality of our current power and the nature of financialization and globalization and the like, there's been almost a de-emphasis of workplace mm -hmm. organizing and more trying to find other ways to secure the, those better benefits and, and higher wages. And, it, and I, I fully get it, understand it, it's right in so many ways. Also important is having the workplace organization that can get people in the mode of mm -hmm. struggle and defense of mm -hmm. workplace stuff and get them inactive with other people so they can change their lives in and outside the workplace. And you miss that when we, t we try to get the right. deal cut in DC for a good policy that was needed, by the way, but you do it away from people themselves being right. in motion. So I think that that, that important value of Work organizing is not just the idea of 
increasing wages. It's also a matter of how do you actually give power that can be exerted in, on, on the floor itself, in the workplace. And linked to that is both the particular issue the Black folks face in the workplace that need to be addressed, but also the broader That's community right. stuff. Because, you know, working folk are working folk 24-7, right? Not just eight hours in, in a workday sort of thing. So I would hope that that would be another sort of arena for great organization and Black worker activism as, as well. Well, you know, this is, this is interesting because Candace and I were having this discussion uh, the other day about um, an argument that I used to have with Andy Stern, former president of SEIU, uh, at a point when he and I were friends. And, um, and what I realized, Andy would talk a lot about winning powerful workers. And what I realized at a certain point is that what he was talking about was winning bargaining power. He wasn't talking about winning societal power. I think we're talking about, you and I are talking about winning societal power for workers. And so that is power in the workplace and power in the community. It's about power in the political realm. Uh, it's about uh, uh, power in the intellectual realm. And, and what we have, unfortunately, are many uh, liberals and progressives in the labor movement that have restricted the discussion of power to a discussion of what can be won at the bargaining table. And that that's the kind of power that the union movement should be addressing. And I would argue, no, we need to be uh, a social justice movement that has a much broader conception of power. And if you think about uh, a union campaign, let's say that we fight the good fight, we do for the most part the right things, and we lose because that's the world we live in. And we get we got say thirty-five to forty percent of the vote. That's a lot of goddamn people, dude, right. in the workplace who want to some sense of collective organization. I would raise the issue of what do you do mm -hmm. with that power? How do you keep it in motion despite having lost the election, quote unquote? So they can both use that power to improve the conditions in and outside the workplace, but also show some of the folk who voted against the union the value of a collective action. And so just a narrow focus on kind of winning an election and getting a contract, though it's super important, by the way, a, a very narrow approach to that stuff can be devastating in, in the long That's run. That's correct. And, and so what you're describing uh, is non-majority unionism. And it's um, something that a number of unions in the public sector in the South and the Southwest, where they have actually not, uh, they don't have collective bargaining rights, and in some cases don't even have the right to organization, have engaged in. And, and so it's about, you're right, it's about building organ an organization of the workers and that the objectives of that organization are to redefine the fight around power. So some of that is going to be what happens in particular workplaces. And in other cases, it may be even broader than that about what's going on in the community, but operating as workers in the community. Yeah. The, the third bucket is looking at black mm -hmm. women workers. I'm excited about that for a lot of reasons. Um, one is I can learn more. 
I mean, one thing I really enjoyed in this first season is I learned things as mm-hmm. I talked to y'all. It was kind of super cool. Um, so I'm enjoy- looking forward to that because I don't have a good... S- so I have sense of my bearings on some issues. Some I know my bearings are kind of weak. And you know, dude, that's where they're weak, okay? So I would love to get better sense of the whole question of black women worker organizing and understand the value added beyond just organizing workers that comes from having black women workers deeply engaged in the process. And equally important, how does the vantage point of black women workers differ from black women at large? And so I'm excited by the idea of exploring that in, in terms of seeing mm-hmm. just those two things. You know, both what's the value added to black worker organizing when we look at the question of black women workers and really work of building worker power in general, but also how it can, I'll say, root better some black concerns when we bring the issue of black women workers in, not black women in, in, in general. And I look forward to that segment. Um, I mean, I was on a discussion earlier today and uh someone was raising the issue of black women workers um, and made a statement about um, sort of the absence of black men a lot of, because of mass incarceration and 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 I uh, and and therefore black women you know stepping into leadership roles or whatever and and I said no um, Black women have always been leaders and black women have always been at the vanguard of our struggles. Black men frequently dominate or lead organizations, but the work is done by women. And, uh, and so what I think we see, and we can see this in some elements of the broader Black Lives Matter movement and others, is that there really are different kinds of leadership styles. Um, and, uh, you know, not to overly romanticize it, but I think it becomes very, very important to recognize um, the different leadership styles as well as the expectation of members and the kinds of demands that are being advanced, um, many of which are uh, frequently overlooked by male leaders. So... Um, I think that this provides a great opportunity, Steve. And it's and, and it's not just it's not just the kind of the women's issues, right. quote unquote, black women's and workers' issues. It's mm-hmm. building power. You know, that, that, so whenever we talk about the things attached from power, we always go downhill in the conversations. But the essential point is that by, by raising the voices and interests and needs of black women workers, we're being powerful our workers. It's super important right. to see that. Absolutely. The last thing, Bill, I think to begin that section, so I know you, you know me, we're the first atone for our sins of the mm. past, my brother. Okay. Okay. And, and then we'll do that first. And then we'll have an episode going forward. Okay. Sounds How's that like sound? <laughs> um, but, but seriously, man, the, the last bug is going to look at the idea of, of building a governing mm-hmm. majority, you know, and I, and, and I want to discuss that because it's super complicated. I mean, I think about what's happening at the state level. And as you know, I spent a long time in Texas, right? So I have a sense of Texas at some level. And 
we could do quite well in the, I guess, four or five metro areas, depending on how you look at Dallas-Fort Worth, and still not have governing power at the state level. And so at some point in time, our vision of government majority has got to go, be, has to go beyond simply the cities right. to the states. And I think it's going beyond just the changing suburban areas because I think that that gets complicated when we talk about that, that being our sense of the new areas. Because yes, there are changes in the racial composition of the suburbs, but too often we can get locked into kind of going for the suburban voters. And I mean, the, the suburban white voters, by the way, that can be complicated. And there are some people who may not be, you know, white suburban voters who, given proper work, are more deeply on our side than someone who's kind of turned off by Trump's um, boorishness, you know? And so I think the idea of how do you actually talk about a governing majority in the states is a super important question to explore and understand. So it means you have to be doing organizing in the state as a whole. And uh, and this is where I think uh, people like Anthony Thigpen and John Liss, uh, Anthony from California, John Liss from Virginia, have uh, really been trying to chart a new course and saying that we've got to be thinking about um, building that kind of power. Um, you know, my friend Richard Healy uh, and some others have talked a lot about governing power. And many of us on the left really paid, have paid very little attention until recently about that. We have mainly thought of our role at, on the left as either being fighting defensive fights, maybe fighting ballot initiatives, and then waiting for the great uh, wave to merge at the ocean and just sweep away capitalism and bring us into power. And we can say, hallelujah. Um, but there's like no interim. And so the idea of fighting for governing power within the context of a so-called democratic uh, constitution, democratic constitutionalist capitalist state, right? That's a challenge. How do we win? And so uh, one part of that is that, yeah, we are, we're going to have to think about Rural organizing. I was reading this article the other day about, you know, these poor and incredibly reactionary white folks in Appalachia, uh, in, in many cases in areas that had traditionally voted Democratic, and, um, and now these are Trump supporters. Um, we have to figure out within them who can actually be won over. And I don't, I don't think that this is going to be an easy question at all. Uh, I think that the right wing has been so successful at appealing to white insecurity and fears uh, and stress that, I mean, it's absolutely an uphill struggle, but it's one that we're going to have to engage in. And so I think that that means, you know, groups like the Rural Organizing Project that become very, very important of building um, and identifying alliances that can be made with uh, organizations in smaller towns. Um, I think it should be a role that unions uh, can and should play 
in terms of uh, building political action and building a base. It's also, Bill, a couple of things. One, rural doesn't mean white. And, and so when when I talk, and I'm assuming when you talk about doing rural organizing, you're not talking right. about just white folks. I want to learn a lot more about Georgia, you know, beyond what Stacey, Stacey Adams has done, Abrams has done, rather, and also the sister, I've got her name now, who's in charge of, I guess, New, Virginia, New, New Georgia majority, mm-hmm. the work they've done there, too, is I have a sense of the electoral activity. I don't have a sense, I mean, I simply don't know about the non-electoral stuff. And are you building kind of the community infrastructure where you kind of build up the black social society in, in, in those states as well? So I'm excited to, to get a sense of that. Um, but this has been great, Bill. We, we're mm-hmm. almost out of time. Um, Norma to ask you what you're reading, what you're listening, but we're out of time, dude. Yeah, so sorry. no, it is. But I'm reading real quick. I'm going to say it. Uh, Blood and Money by Dave McNally. War, Slavery, Violence, and Empire which I want to recommend. And also, Steve, uh, The Reluctant Reformers by Robert Allen and Pamela Allen Allen is going to be reissued. uh, And I just finished rereading it. And in the review I wrote, I pointed out, I thought it was going to be a quick read because I read it before, right? Nope. It was like, I, I was reading page by page. The book is really damn good. And so there's some good material out there. So okay. Thanks, Bill. Okay. So Bill, appreciate right. everything, man. Keep uh, the faith. We'll be in touch, okay? Take care. Later. Always, man. Bye bye. This ends season one of Black Work Talk. For me, the most rewarding element of this podcast has been the opportunity to talk with friends, old and new, about this complicated world we are trying to change and learn from these conversations. I hope you have learned as well. Black Work Talk will take a brief break and begin season two in early August. Beyond the four broad themes mentioned on the show, Black Left, Black Worker Organizing, Black Women Worker, and Building a Progressive Government Majority, we will incorporate some new elements into the podcast, which will enhance the quality of the show. Stay tuned. And I want to thank the folks at Organizing Upgrade for the support of this podcast. Without their partnership, Black Work Talk would not exist in its form with solid content and high production values. Organizing Upgrade does a lot of phenomenal work as an online space designed to strengthen social movements. While Black Work Talk is on hiatus, please check out Organizing Upgrade's weekly live show, Frontline Dispatches. The show highlights organizers and activists at ground zero of fights for racial and economic justice. You can catch it on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Central, and 4 p.m. Pacific, or anytime on Organizing Upgrade's Facebook page. Well, that's a wrap. Enjoy the summer weather. And until next episode, stay safe and be well. <laughs>